Christmas, of course, is something that we just celebrated. And really, our theme for this morning is going to be centered around the theme of Christmas because Christmas is all about the person of Jesus Christ, about his incarnation, about the reality that God the Son became the Son of Man so that as man, he might redeem sinful men and women and reconcile us to God. And of course, when we think about Christmas, we take a lot of those theological truths for granted, and it's important for us to be reminded of the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a man, a baby in the manger. But those theological realities are deep and profound truths How is it that the eternal God took on flesh and became a man so that he, the giver of life, might die, so that we as sinners might be reconciled to him? These are profound truths, and those profound truths were really at the center of even some major theological discussions and debates in the first few centuries of the history of the church And that's where our discussion of church history will pick up today. And so in that sense, Christmas becomes the theme even of what we're talking about this morning because we're talking about the incarnation of Christ and the church's understanding of that incredible truth in a number of church councils. So I do want us to review just a little bit of where we've been. Uh, This is called Controversies and Councils. If you have the workbook, this is lesson number seven. If not, that's no problem. You can just follow along with the PowerPoint. Uh, I do want to remind us a little bit of where we've been. In fact, uh, when I reminded my wife that we were going to be coming back to this, she told me that she didn't remember exactly where we had left off, which is totally understandable, and that's probably where you're at as well. So hopefully this will remind you a little bit. We left off talking about the patristic period of the church. Uh, The patristic period, uh, meaning the age of the church fathers. And when we talk about the church fathers, we're talking about those early Christian leaders in the history of the church. And so when we call them fathers, we're not calling them fathers in any sort of Roman Catholic sense. We're calling them fathers more in the sense of like the American founding fathers. These are the early leaders in the history of the church. The patristic age lasts anywhere between the first five to eight centuries of church history. Different historians kind of mark that period a little bit differently. Uh, The Middle Ages definitely start in the 5th century and go to the 15th century, and we're bridging the gap today between the age of the church fathers and what we call the Middle Ages. The reason it's called the Middle Ages is simply because in Western society, in the 5th century, the western half of the Roman Empire fell to barbarian tribal groups, out of which eventually emerged the nations of Europe. But the western half of the Roman Empire kind of took a few steps backwards culturally and socially in the 5th century. The rest of the Roman Empire, the eastern half of the Roman Empire, remained intact. It was known as the Byzantine Empire. It remained intact all the way until the uh, 15th century. It didn't fall to the Ottoman Turks until 1453. 
And so the Middle Ages is that period of time between the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire and the fall of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And in terms of the development of Western civilization, it really is that period of time between the end of antiquity, which represents the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire, and the beginning of the modern age, which took place in the 15th and 16th centuries, and we'll talk about that more later. So today's lesson, today's lecture, I really think this is more of a lecture than a sermon, Uh, today's lesson is bridging the gap between the patristic age, the age of the church fathers, and the middle ages. Next week, we'll talk about things like uh, the development and decline of the papacy. We'll talk about things like the Crusades, the development of the university system in Western Europe, and these kinds of developments that took place in the high and late Middle Ages. So that just is an orientation to where we are and a reminder of, of where we've been. Today our theme is the seven major church councils of early church history, and uh, we refer to these as the seven ecumenical councils. The word ecumenical in our contemporary evangelical context has a very negative connotation because it almost always is used as a synonym for compromise, but in church history, ecumenical simply means all-encompassing. It means worldwide or in, the say, or in the case of the Roman Empire, it means empire-wide. So these seven councils are councils that involved Christian leaders from both halves of the Roman Empire, the western half being the Latin-speaking half and the eastern half being the Greek-speaking half of the Roman Empire. And you can see how this overlaps a little bit with the previous chart that we had up there, Uh, which went through the 1st through 5th centuries. These seven councils start in the 4th century and go all the way through the 8th century. So you have the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381. Those two are in the 4th century. And then in the 5th century, the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And then you have one council per century for the next three centuries after that. In 553, the Second Council of Constantinople. In 680 to 681, the Third Council of Constantinople. And in 787, the Second Council of Nicaea. And I realize when you hear me say that, that means nothing to you. That's just names and numbers. I might as well be talking about airline, uh, airlines that are about to take off. That sounds like a flight schedule. Um, but I want to explain to you a little bit about what these councils are why they're important, why they matter, how they uh, teach us about the development of the church's understanding about the person of Jesus Christ. Because each of these councils centers on the person of Jesus Christ as its, as its primary area of focus. And, and really, the primary area of focus is about understanding who Jesus Christ is in terms of how the Bible reveals truth about him. In other words, what does the word of God say about the Son of God? How does the written word of God reveal truth about the incarnate word of God? And, of course, this is the most important of all subjects, 
And I would say it this way, that when we think about the major councils of early church history, it's appropriate that those councils would have focused on the person of Jesus Christ because he is the very essence of Christianity. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To not understand who Jesus Christ is has eternal implications. And so to understand who he is accurately is to then have the opportunity to worship him correctly and to turn to the scripture is to turn to the place where we are understanding who he is based on how his spirit has revealed the truth about him to us. So when we think about these councils, these councils are Christian leaders coming together, looking to the word of God in order to understand the person of Jesus Christ. And it is that theme that ties all seven of these seven councils together. Now this morning, we're going to focus just on three of the most important of these councils, though I will give you a brief explanation about all seven. The three most important are the Council of Nicaea, the First Council of Constantinople, and the Council of Chalcedon in uh, the year 451. All right. Setting just a little bit of the backdrop for this, when we think about these church councils, I think we need to do so against the backdrop of the New Testament warning about the reality of false teachers and the very real threat of doctrinal error. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns about false prophets. He says that they are like wolves in sheep's clothing and that you will know them by their fruit. The Apostle Paul picks up on that same metaphor of wolves when he warns the Ephesian elders that after my departure, savage wolves will come into the flock and they will create a great deal of damage. Uh, The Apostle Peter similarly warned his readers about the, the very real threat of false teachers. And he talked about the fact that in the same way that there were false prophets who arose among the people of Israel in the Old Testament, so also there are false teachers who threaten the church in the New Testament era. In 2 John, the Apostle John, actually in both 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, the Apostle John warns about false teachers who he says are of the spirit of Antichrist And significantly, these false teachers were denying a core aspect of who Jesus Christ is. They were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And the Apostle John says, if someone denies that Jesus was truly human in his incarnation, that person is of the spirit of Antichrist. So it is essential to rightly understand the person of Christ. And of course, Jude, in his letter, warns of certain persons who creep into the church unnoticed and who then cause all sorts of chaos, confusion, and havoc because of their false teaching. So it's no surprise then against this biblical backdrop that the history of the church is a history that includes false teachers who rise up and preach and teach error And then the true church, having been warned to resist and reject those false teachers, responds to those attacks by looking to the word of God and articulating 
a right response based on biblical truth. So as false teachers, as it says here, as false teachers have arisen throughout history, true believers have defended the truth in the face of such attacks. And I think when we think about these church councils, the right way to think about them is Christian leaders from throughout the Roman Empire assembling to respond to an attack, and that attack was based on, focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes people ask, well, why did it take 300 years or 295 years from AD 30 to 325? Why did it take 295 years for the church to hold one of these major church councils? The answer to that is simply the fact that it was not possible for believers to gather in public to address these kinds of concerns prior to 325 because of the persecution that Christians faced in the Roman Empire. It wasn't until Constantine came to the throne, issued the Edict of Milan, granting tolerance and peace for Christians in the year 313, and then he gained control of the entire Roman Empire in the year 324. It was the following year then that we have the first of these major councils, the year 325. So it's the reality of false teaching and the opportunity presented by a Christian Roman emperor that then makes it possible for Christian leaders throughout the Roman Empire to gather to address the threats that the church faces in their generation. So seven major councils. Let me talk briefly about these, and then we'll look at the three of the most important of these major councils this morning. So the seven most important councils are called seven ecumenical councils. And again, they're called ecumenical because they were empire-wide. Really, the first couple of councils went beyond the Roman Empire. There were Christian nations outside of the Roman Empire. For example, Armenia, uh, Ethiopia, some of these nations that had become Christian even before the Roman Empire became Christian. And so the first councils included Christian leaders from even outside the Roman Empire. So they're called ecumenical councils because at that time they included Christian leaders from across the known world. And they responded, as we've said, to doctrinal controversies and errors in their day. Uh, They were called by emperors who summoned the bishops, the senior pastors from all of the churches throughout the Roman Empire. And the reason the emperors got involved was because these theological issues were so significant that they actually threatened the political unity of the Roman Empire at the time. And in the way that perhaps we might look at our American political system and say, wow, the political system of America today is very polarized. People get very passionate about which political party they support And even at times, it almost feels like there could be a civil war between the two political parties. Maybe that's overstating it a little bit, but you understand the passion and the angst that's involved in our own political system. Imagine if the American political parties got involved in theological debates. That's essentially what you have in the Roman Empire in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, And so these theological issues had massive political implications, 
which is why the emperor got involved. It would be as if the president of the United States called a theological conference because there was a theological issue that actually threatened the stability of the American political system. And uh, these councils were major, they were massive, they lasted for months at a time, and they had significant implications. Okay, one thing that I do want to say as we get started here is it is, I believe, vitally important for believers today to understand that the reason why we believe what we believe is not because of these church councils, but because of what the Word of God teaches. And we'll come back to this at the very end, but when we think about church councils in church history and the creeds that they produced, including the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed, these creeds do not establish doctrine. They do not establish what we believe. They are not why we believe what we believe. Rather, they articulate and affirm biblical truth. And a council is only valid insofar as its conclusions agree with and accord with what is revealed in the truth of God's word. And conversely, we as believers can evaluate these councils based on whether or not their conclusions align with biblical truth. So it's just very important every time we talk about church history, to remind ourselves that church history is not our authority. Scripture is our authority. And when it comes to understanding the person of Christ, we don't look to church history to define the person of Christ for us. We look to the word of Christ to define the person of Christ for us. Having said that, I think you'll be encouraged this morning to find that the vast majority of these church councils... Uh, the, the Christian leaders who were involved in them were seeking to be faithful to biblical truth. And so the conclusions they reach are biblical conclusions, which is why we can celebrate these councils rather than seeing these councils as negative developments in the history of the church. Okay, as I mentioned already, we're going to look at the three most important of these church councils. That would be the Council of Nicaea in 325, the First Council of Constantinople in 381, and the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451. So we'll start with the Council of Nicaea. Now, the Council of Nicaea we talked about before Thanksgiving. So this is going to be a little bit of review, and that's okay because I don't expect that you remembered necessarily all that we talked about prior to Thanksgiving when we were going through these things. And the Council of Nicaea really is the grandfather of all of the church councils, and in that sense is the most important of all of them. It's also the most well-known. If you were to talk to almost any person attending any church, if it has any sense of a historic tie to Christianity, the person has probably heard of the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea. Uh, The Council of Nicaea started because of a false teacher named Arius, and we've talked about Arius already. He was a presbyter or an elder in the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and the pastor of the church in Alexandria, Egypt at the time was a guy named Alexander of Alexandria, 
And Alexander was preaching through passages like John chapter 1, and he was emphasizing the truth of John 1. 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was emphasizing the deity of the Word, the deity of God the Son, the deity of Jesus Christ. And Alexander was emphasizing the fact that the Word of God referring to the incarnate word, the Son of God, God the Son, that the word is co-eternal with God the Father. And because he is co-eternal with God the Father, he is of the same essence as God the Father and therefore is co-equal to the Father. Against this, Arius reacted negatively and began to teach that The Son of God is a created being. So Arius was undermining the teaching of his senior pastor, Alexander. Arius was arguing that God the Son, or the Son of God, is a creature, a created being. And in that sense, Arius was very much like a 4th century Jehovah's Witness, And so the Council of Nicaea is not just an important historical development. It has implications and relevance for today when, you know, when you open the door and there is a group of Jehovah's Witnesses standing there at your door trying to convince you that Jesus Christ is not God, that he is less than God the Father. All they are doing is regurgitating the same errors of Arius from the fourth century. And again, to get the person of Jesus Christ wrong is to have the wrong Jesus, and to worship the wrong Jesus is a serious error with eternal implications. And we've talked about that before. So Arius is denying the deity of Christ. He argues that Jesus has a beginning because he was a created being, and because he was a created being, he's of a different essence or a different substance than God the Father, and because he's of a different substance than God the Father, he is not equal to God the Father. So Arius denies the eternality of Christ, the co-essentiality of Christ, and the co-equality of Christ with the Father. This, of course, leads to a major controversy. And that controversy uh, eventually leads to a council in the year 325. And you can see the three major views that were presented at that council. Uh, The three views are all given Greek names here. So it feels like in theology, we sometimes give really complicated names to somewhat simple concepts. Sometimes that's because the terms come out of the Greek or the Latin. And remember, in the, in the Roman Empire, in the East, they spoke Greek, and in the West, they spoke Latin. And so you have both Greek and Latin terms coming out of the same period of time in church history, depending on which side of the Roman Empire you're on. So here at the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea was a city not far from Constantinople, which of course today is Istanbul, Turkey, which was the capital city of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And uh, Arius's view was what's called heterousius. Usius, the Greek term, it means essence. The translation of usius into Latin is substantia, which means substance. 
So you can use the English term essence or substance. Those terms mean the same thing when we're talking about the Council of Nicaea. And Arius taught that Jesus Christ is of a different substance than God the Father. And again, this was all built on the fact that in Arius' mind, God the Son, the Son of God, that the Son of God was the first created being. He was the first creature. And of course, that means that he's not of the same substance as God the Father. Uh, he's, somewhat, he's something less than being fully equal to God the Father. He's something less than being fully God. Uh, that view was immediately rejected by the council because the council recognized immediately that that is not what the Bible teaches about who Jesus Christ is. And in fact, when we talked about the Council of Nicaea back in fall, we went through 10 different arguments, all biblically-based arguments for why we know that Jesus Christ is God, very God, that he is fully God. Um, The view of Alexander which was then championed by a deacon in the church named Athanasius, which is a name that we talked about back in fall, was the view that the Son of God is truly God the Son, that he is not a created being, that he is the second member of the Trinity, that he is co-eternal and therefore co-essential and co-equal with God the Father. And that's what I have listed here is the Trinitarian view. It should be noted that at the Council of Nicaea, the focus was on the deity of Christ, not on the Trinity per se, but the doctrine of the deity of Christ is essential to the doctrine of the Trinity. And then there was a a compromise view that was brought forth, which I have here in the middle because it was presented as sort of a middle way. And it was the idea that, well, okay, maybe... Um, maybe the, the homoousius view of the, Trini- of the Trinitarians and the heterousius view of, of the Arians, maybe we can find middle ground. And so it was this homoousius view, which is the idea that Jesus is of a, a similar substance to God the Father, but maybe not the same substance. And of course, that view, although it was a softer way of saying different, really didn't change much about Arianism. And when Arius's view, heterousius, was immediately rejected by the council, he simply shifted over to the homoousius view because to say Jesus is of a similar substance is still to say he's of a different substance. It's just to say it in a less offensive way. So the mediating view really wasn't a middle ground at all. It was just a less offensive way of still packaging false teaching. And the council recognized that. And so without going into all of the details that we already rehearsed about the council of Nicaea, the council rightly rejected both the heterousius view and the homoousius view as being contrary to what the word of Christ reveals about the person of Christ. Because the word of God clearly reveals that God the Son, the incarnate word, is co-eternal with God the Father, and therefore of the same substance as God the Father, and therefore co-equal to God the Father. And it was affirmed of the 318 bishops who attended the Council of Nicaea, 316 of them signed the Nicene Creed. Now, this was not a vote 
on whether or not we think Jesus is God, this was an overwhelming affirmation of the reality that the senior pastors at that time recognized that what Scripture reveals about Jesus Christ is that he is eternal and co-equal with God the Father. And that would be the right way to think about that. And I think another thing that's really fascinating about the, the Council of Nicaea is to recognize that the, the, the bishops, the, the senior pastors who were there, were men who had all endured severe persecution prior to Constantine's coming to the throne. And so these are men who not only have a sacred duty to protect sound doctrine, they are also men who had paid a severely high price for the person of Christ whom they worshipped and whom they cared deeply to understand in an accurate and biblical way. Uh, This is a 9th century, so it's a, a bit removed from the Council of Nicaea, uh, a ninth century artist's depiction of the Council of Nicaea. But I like it because whenever you get to the later medieval paintings about the Council of Nicaea, they make everybody look like they're medieval Roman Catholics with uh, giant hats on their head and stuff. Um, this is a little bit more accurate. That's supposed to be Constantine there meeting with those Christian leaders in the year 325. The Council did put together a creed. And I want to just read the Nicene Creed for you. If you've not heard it before, the Nicene Creed is this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, of the same substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven, and he shall come again to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. So that's the Nicene Creed, which was the articulation of biblical truth about the person of Christ affirmed by 316 senior pastors in the year 325 in response to the false teacher Arius who was trying to make the true church into the Watchtower Society, to use an anachronistic illustration, but one that I think makes the point. There was a moment in history when it seemed as if the church might go Jehovah's Witness and God raised up Christian leaders to stand firm and say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches about who Jesus Christ is. Uh, The Nicene Creed, you'll see here, doesn't say much about the Holy Spirit. It just says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And so as we move past the Council of Nicaea to the Council of Constantinople, which took place in the year 381, We move ahead in church history by about 50 years, a little more than 50 years from 325 to 381. And I think the thing that's maybe surprising to people when they think about Arianism 
is they think the Council of Nicaea should have put an end to it in the Roman Empire, and you would think that, but it didn't. In fact, Arius had very powerful and popular friends. His view was very popular, especially in a Greco-Roman world, where, which, again, the Roman Empire had been pagan and it had just recently converted to Christianity. You had a lot of pagan people who claimed to be Christian. And in paganism, it was very common for the gods to have half-man, half-divine children. People like Hercules, who uh, walked around and was sort of a half-man, half-god figure. And so Arianism caught on in that kind of context, like, oh, sure, God had a son, and that son is something less than the father. Uh, That was the way Arius described the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. And uh, within the pagan mind, that seemed to fit a pagan paradigm. And so Arianism continued to be very popular in the Roman Empire for the next 50 years. And, and God, again, raised up Christian leaders who were willing to take a stand for the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. And that includes Athanasius, who we've talked about before in this uh, class. It also includes some other names, uh, a group known as the Cappadocian Fathers, because they were from a place in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, called Cappadocia, a guy named Basil, and then his brother Gregory, and they had a really good friend who was also named Gregory. So you have Basil and a couple of Gregories, along with Athanasius, all fighting for the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And Athanasius ends up getting exiled, as we talked about, five different times, banished from his pulpit, because he will not compromise on the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God. He is God, very God. He is not something less than God. Well, it takes until the year 381 for Arianism to finally and fully be um, vanquished in the Roman Empire. Uh, You also have... uh, followers of Arius, you have followers of Arius who deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. So Arianism was very much Unitarian. It was a unipersonal monotheism in its argument that God consists only of the Father and the Son and the Spirit are somehow less than fully God. And so you have these Christian leaders also defending the deity of the Holy Spirit in the 4th century. Then there's another error that arises called Apollinarianism. There was a church leader named Apollinaris. Uh, He was from Laodicea. That should have been a red flag. But uh, he, Apollinarianism... He accepted the the full deity of Jesus Christ, but then denied the full humanity of Jesus Christ. In fact, Apollinaris had this idea that Jesus of Nazareth was just sort of the physical shell of of a human being that was sort of possessed by Jesus's divine nature. So, It's as if God just sort of took possession of a physical human body. In fact, sometimes Apollinarianism has been called the the God in a bod 
heresy, which is, I don't know, that's probably the only thing you'll remember from what I say today, and that's fine. (laughs) But it was the idea that in his incarnation, Jesus wasn't 100% human. He was only like 50% human. He had the physical body of a man, but he didn't have the soul spirit, the internal reality of what makes us human. He didn't have a human soul that was simply replaced by his divine spirit. That's what Apollinaris taught. So you have, coming into the Council of Constantinople in 381, you have one group who says, yeah, Jesus is 100% man, but he's not 100% God. That's Arianism. And then you have another teaching that says, well, he's 100% God, but he's not 100% man. That's Apollinarianism. And the Council of Constantinople says, no, wait a second, that's not at all what Scripture teaches. If we look at our three views that were presented at the Council of Constantinople, the Trinitarian view says, no, 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 no. Jesus is 100% God and he is 100% man. In his incarnation, he being fully God takes on humanity and becomes wholly, truly, and fully human. Such that in his incarnation, what we just celebrated at Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, in his incarnation, he is, he who was from eternity past fully God, becomes fully man while remaining fully God. Okay, that's what the council rightly concludes because that's what scripture teaches. And the council also affirms the deity of the Holy Spirit, which is why I've labeled their view Trinitarianism, because they say, no, Jesus is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God. And so the council then expands the Nicene Creed and they expand the Nicene Creed. So you can see they eliminate those two other views. They expand the Nicene Creed with this paragraph about the Holy Spirit. And the paragraph says this, in addition to everything we just read about the Nicene Creed, they add, we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son and who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified and who spoke by the prophets. So this expanded version of the Nicene Creed is what is generally just called the Nicene Creed today. Technically, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, but nobody wants to say that. So when we talk about the Nicene Creed, we're talking about the creed that originally was written in 325 and then expanded in 381 to affirm the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit and to articulate then the doctrine of the Trinity. But the doctrine of the Trinity is not invented in the 4th century. It is revealed on the pages of Scripture and simply articulated in the 4th century in response to groups that want to undermine it. That brings us then to the third of the three councils that I want to talk about today, and that's the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451. Now, remember... Arius, Arianism, had said, Jesus is 100% man, he's fully man, but he's not fully God. Apollinarianism had said, Jesus is fully God, but he's not fully man. 
The Council of, of Constantinople in 381 had rightly concluded, based on what Scripture teaches, that Jesus Christ in his incarnation, he who is fully God, took on flesh and became fully man while remaining fully God. So in his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, the miracle of Christmas, is that the baby in the manger is 100% God and 100% man. And I know you all know that. But this was, this was a topic of, of, of discussion in the 4th and 5th centuries because Christian leaders are trying, they say, I see that revealed in Scripture. I see that he is the Word who was with God and who was God, John 1, 1. And I see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14, right? So I see these truths in Scripture, but how do I reconcile that? Right? This is a, this is a mathematical impossibility, 100% God and 100% man. How do those two things work together? That's the question that they're trying to answer at the Council of Chalcedon. How can Jesus be simultaneously 100% God and 100% man and not be 200%? Right? So, so this is, if, just to put it in sort of base math, mathematical terms, this is, the, this is the question that they're wrestling with at the Council of Chalcedon. And so we have... Um, just to move forward in the PowerPoint here, we have a couple of views that are, are put forward as potential answers to that seeming theological conundrum. Uh, one view is called Nestorianism. It's named after a guy named Nestorius, Nestorius of Constantinople. Nestorianism emphasized a wall of distinction between these two natures, the divine nature, the 100% God, and the human nature, the 100% man. And it puts such a firewall of division between those two natures that it was almost as if it concluded that there were two persons in Jesus, like multiple personalities. Again, sort of the 100%, 100% must equal 200%. That was Nestorianism. And the, the ancient illustration that was used was that the two natures are like water and oil. They never mix together. So that was one view. A second view was put together by an Egyptian named Eutychus. This is called Eutychianism. And Eutychianism argued, well, no, maybe because we don't want the, the answer to our theological equation to be 200%. We want it to just be one person, 100%. Maybe the, the, the natures actually mix together in some way and create sort of a hybrid that's something kind of different. So the ancient illustration that was used was wine mixed with water. If you mix wine and water, the end result's not pure water anymore, but it's not really undiluted wine anymore. It's sort of this hybrid. I like to use the illustration of jello, right? You take a liquid, water, and a, uh, a powder, and you mix them together, and it creates something totally different. 
It's a hybrid of the two, but it's no longer either one of those things. That's Eutychianism. So to sort of summarize, um, Nestorianism, as we said, separated the natures. Eutychianism combined the natures. And so this all leads to a council in the year 451 at Chalcedon. And if we were to kind of summarize these views, it would essentially be this. Nestorianism says, well, there's two natures, and that means that there's two persons. 100% plus 100% equals 200%. Uh, Eutychianism said, no, 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 no. There's only one person. The answer can only be 100%. So maybe it's 50% plus 50% equals 100%. Well, at Chalcedon, the church leaders who gathered there recognized that neither of those options were acceptable. Jesus did not have multiple personalities. He was one person. But to somehow say that his deity and his humanity mixed together to create some sort of hybrid, that's not acceptable either, because that would mean that he was somehow less than fully God or less than fully man in his incarnation. And so both of those, the two-person side of Nestorianism was rejected, and the hybrid nature side of Eutychianism was rejected to give us the conclusion of the Council of Chalcedon, which is that in his incarnation, the one person of Jesus Christ took on a human nature such that Jesus Christ possesses two natures, even though he is only one person, and those two natures coexist in the one person, Jesus Christ, in a way that we can't fully understand. And this is what we call the hypostatic union, which is a union of the substance of who Jesus is without compromising who he is. And this resulted as well, this council, in a creed called the Chalcedonian Creed. And the the key part of the Chalcedonian Creed says this, We confess that one and the same Christ, Lord, and only begotten Son is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, change, division, or separation. Eutychianism had confused and changed the natures. Nestorianism had divided and separated the natures. Chalcedon said, you can't do that. We affirm the two natures. The distinction between natures was never abolished by their union, but rather the character proper to each of the two natures was preserved as they came together in the one person and one substance or hypostasis of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about the hypostatic union. Again, it's a nice nice big theological phrase. It's theological jargon. And you probably hear that and you automatically assume, oh, that's a seminary student. Um, But where does that term come from? It comes from this council. And why was this council addressing that issue? Is because they were trying to think through how is it possible that God, very God, could become man, very man, and yet remain God, very God, even after his incarnation. 100% God, 100% man, how do we reconcile that 
mathematical impossibility. And the answer of the Council of Chalcedon in looking to Scripture was to say, we know that this is true, and we know that this is true, and we're just going to believe both are true. And affirm the mystery without seeking to try and get our finite brains around an infinite, miraculous reality that God took on flesh and became a man, and yet did not cease to be God in his incarnation. So you didn't even know that Christmas was all that controversial, but Christmas has been controversial throughout church history in terms of the theological realities that are celebrated at Christmas time. All right, the other four councils, I just want to very briefly highlight these for you. In the year 431, there was a council in Ephesus. Again, the, the first council, Nicaea, deity of Christ. Second council, Constantinople, reaffirms deity of Christ, also affirms the full humanity of Christ. At Ephesus, they're thinking through specifically Christmas. They're thinking through, okay, how should we think about the baby in the, in the manger? How should we speak about the baby in the manger? Knowing that the baby in the manger is fully man, but also fully God, what should we emphasize? And the Council of Ephesus said, well, really, we should emphasize his deity, that it is God in the manger. And in fact, it was at the Council of Ephesus that they adopted the term bearer of God in reference to Mary which, of course, later in church history gets used as a way to elevate Mary as the mother of God. But that was not the intention of the council. The intention of the council was to safeguard the doctrine of the deity of Christ even when we think about the birth of Christ. In, in that most human of moments, can we preserve the reality of his deity when we speak about his birth? The council said yes. And so they affirmed the title bearer of God in reference to Mary as a way to safeguard the doctrine of the deity of Christ. That was 431 at the Council of Ephesus. Uh, then you have the Second Council of Constantinople, which came after the Council of Chalcedon and affirmed the Council of Chalcedon that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, fully God from eternity past, and fully man from the moment of his incarnation. And then you have the third council of Constantinople, which they're still debating these things, in which they talked about whether or not Jesus Christ had one will or two wills, had to do with the relationship between will and nature. And they concluded Jesus Christ in his incarnation, had a human will, because that's what it means to be human. But as God, very God, he also had a divine will. And that divine will is in perfect accord, of course, with the Father's will. And his human will is in perfect submission to that divine will. And then finally, the Second Council of Nicaea, which is the most controversial of the councils, all the way in the year 787, there was a big disagreement about whether or not the church should have pictures, images, they were called icons, images of Jesus and the saints, but mainly images of Jesus. Should the church be making pictures of Jesus? 
And the debate was, does that constitute idolatry if you venerate a picture of Jesus? And initially the church said yes at an earlier council that got overruled uh, by this council in 787 where the church said, well, you can, you can use pictures as long as you're not worshiping the pictures, you're just venerating the pictures. But that line of confusion and blurriness got really, really fuzzy in later church history. So, landing the plane on this, evaluating councils and controversies. Just a few thoughts. Um, As evangelicals, I come back to what we said earlier. We believe what we believe because of what the Bible teaches. We are Bible-believing Christians. It's the principle of sola scriptura that scripture is our highest authority for faith and practice. So we believe what we believe because of what the Bible teaches, which means that we can evaluate these church councils on the basis of being good Bereans, going back to the word of God to see if these things are so. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul Uh, was the Apostle Paul who um, instructed the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 to examine everything carefully. And he was doing that in response to uh, that which claimed to be revelation from God. When somebody came in and claimed to be a prophet, Paul said, examine everything carefully, test everything carefully You hold fast to that which is good, but you reject that which is false. And how do we examine things? We examine things always through the lens and the grid of Scripture. So when we think about these councils, the the three that we focused on today, we can affirm. We can affirm gladly because the doctrine that was articulated by those councils is doctrine that is clearly biblical. The deity of Christ, clearly biblical, the Council of Nicaea. The deity of the Holy Spirit, clearly biblical, uh, the Council of Constantinople. The full deity and full humanity of Christ, clearly biblical. And then even the relationship between the two. I think Chalcedon got it exactly right, that we affirm that he is fully God and he is fully man, and we acknowledge that we don't fully understand how those things relate to one another other than to say, this is what the Bible teaches and therefore we believe it. And so to affirm that he is one person, of course, that's what scripture teaches, but one person who is 100% God and 100% man is to be in accord with what scripture reveals about the Lord Jesus. And so like the noble Bereans then, we go to the text of scripture think final slide here. We can be grateful for historic councils. We can be grateful because we see how Christians in the past responded to false teaching. I mean, it's helpful to me to know that I'm not the first person to interact with a Jehovah's Witness in defending the deity of Christ and rejecting the doctrine that he's, that the Lord Jesus is some sort of creature. It's encouraging, it's affirming, but it ultimately leads us back to the word of God. We should also remember that the authority for what we believe is not found in the councils of church history, but only in the scriptures.
All right, well, that brings us to the end of this particular lesson and serves for us as a bridge from the patristic period to the medieval period to the Middle Ages. We'll pick up there next week. So thank you. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father, we are grateful for the way that you have preserved your truth in church history. But more than that, we're grateful for the way that you have revealed your truth in your word. And your word serves as the unchanging the unchanging plumb line, the unchanging compass, the unchanging guide for how we know what is true and how we can discern the difference between truth and error. And Father, I am grateful for the history of faithful church leaders who gathered together to look to your word to defend the truth in the face of attack. Lord, I pray that for us, even today, that we would be found faithful to do the same, that we would be discerning Christians who, like the Bereans, go to the scriptures, that we examine everything carefully, and that we do so not because we think that we are superior in any way to those who have come before us, but only because we are all, as your sheep, submitted to your word. And so in submission to the truth of your word, we seek to worship to worship you, to worship your son, and to worship in a way that is accurate and precise. And so, Lord, even as we've learned today, help us to do that in keeping with the truth of your word so that we might worship your son whom we love with purity of devotion and and in purity of doctrine. We pray these things then in his name. Amen.